morning. It's good to see all of you. I'm glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you're one of our guests, we're especially glad you're here, and we do hope you will stick around for services. Let us get to know you and get to know us just a bit better. On behalf of my family to you, happy Mother's Day. And so in light of that, uh, this sermon is entitled, Great Commission Motherhood. Great Commission Motherhood. Come with me to Matthew chapter 28, and I want to read the last three verses of Matthew's gospel, verses 18 through 20 of Matthew chapter 28. Begin our reading in verse 18. Hear now the word of the true and living God. And Jesus came and said to them, that is his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for mothers. We pray that as we look into your word, that you would give us insight so that we can see the good and glorious things that are contained therein. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Reverend Dr. G. Campbell Morgan. He was a well-known Baptist preacher and evangelist in the first half of the 20th century. He pastored the famous Westminster Chapel in London for a number of years, and he taught at Biola in Los Angeles uh, for about a dozen years. He authored The Fundamentals. That actually became the foundation for the fundamental movement in the early 20th century. And Morgan had four sons. All of them grew up to become ministers. The Morgan family was at a family reunion, and a friend of the family asked one of the sons, which Morgan is the greatest preacher? And while the son looked at his father, he said, mother. History is rife with examples of mothers who discipled their families. They helped their husbands carry through their leadership in the family with the gifts that God had given them. They patiently taught their children the faith. They served in the Lord's church faithfully. And motherhood is to be celebrated. It is to be supported. And we especially in the church celebrate and support the disciple-making efforts of mothers. You see, God calls mothers to disciple their families. When Jesus speaks the Great Commission, He is speaking to His disciples, and a great many mothers are His disciples. They are His followers. And so what, what do we mean by Great Commission motherhood? Well, I believe that Scripture provides examples of what it means for mothers and for women generally to make disciples, to be about the Great Commission. And in fact, what's very interesting, where we're going to start, may seem interesting to you as well, that when it comes to biblical examples of women 
and mothers who made disciples, we can actually start in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, we have the story of Hannah. Hannah is an example of a mother who passed her faith along to her son, uh, a, a mother who dedicates her son Samuel to service to the one true God, Yahweh. We're told in verses 5 and 6, more than once, that Yahweh had closed Hannah's womb. She, she could not have children. She is afflicted and she is oppressed because of this condition by her rival, Penina. We don't know a lot about Penina. We know that she had children and she held that over Hannah's head. But, we're told in verse 19, that Yahweh remembered Hannah. He remembered her. She had prayed. And in the midst of praying, she was praying in her heart and was moving her lips. She wasn't actually vocalizing her prayer. And when the priest Eli saw her, he said, lady, you need to quit drinking. Which is very interesting. That he would speak this to a woman that he apparently didn't know. And yet his own sons, were, they were a mess morally. Well, maybe that's the Father's Day sermon coming. But Eli will not speak that word to his sons, and yet he says that to Hannah, who is not drunk. She's praying. She tells him this, and then he says, well, go in peace. And Yahweh had heard her prayers. He remembered. He grants her conception. And her child, like all children, her child is a heritage from Yahweh. It is a, he is a gift from God. And Hannah models herself as a mother, as a parent, who understands that children are a gift from God that we are to give back to Him one day. And so she, when Samuel is old enough, she gives Samuel to service to the temple, gives him in service to Yahweh. She raised him so that she could give him to Yahweh all of his days. I think that's an example of motherhood that is to be commended. Even a mother who made a disciple of her child, a follower of Yahweh. Well, just generally, there are other women in Scripture who make disciples. One that is noteworthy is Mary Magdalene, who in John's Gospel, in John chapter 20, she is actually the first witness to the resurrected Christ. And in verses 11 through 18, you have her encounter with the risen Lord. And they have a conversation. And one of the things that he tells her is, well, he commissions her to go to my brothers. That is Jesus' way of talking about his disciples. She is to go and she is to give them a message. Say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene does just that. She goes and she announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. She does this. She is commissioned and she becomes one who speaks good news, glad tidings, even the gospel of the risen Lord. She's one of the first people to do that. We have another woman in the book of Acts. Her name is, is Priscilla. She and her husband, Aquila, 
are often spotlighted and highlighted in the book of Acts as disciple makers. And she's one of she says she makes disciples. One example of this is at the end of Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. You have this man, Apollos. He is a native of Alexandria. He's a very well-spoken, an eloquent man who's competent in the Scriptures, we're told. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was very zealous, very fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. It's at this point that Priscilla and Aquila, notice her name first, very interesting. When they heard Apollos speaking in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Here is a woman and she is involved in making disciples. In this case, uh, helping tighten the lens for Apollos. Helping him better understand the things of God and, and what it means to preach the gospel. And, and that's what ends up happening. He uh, goes on his way, as do Priscilla and Aquila. Well, back to mothers, specifically. And if you come with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, you're probably already ahead of me. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, we read about Timothy's mother and grandmother. And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Notice it's a sincere faith, a genuine, a real, an authentic faith that Timothy has. But notice, this is a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. You notice you have three generations of disciples. This sincere faith is the same sincere faith that Timothy's grandmother Lois had, the same sincere faith that his mother Eunice has. It is a faith that existed in them. That's the idea of it dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. It existed. They, they had it. They possess it. Uh, and so, it seems that Lois, the grandmother, was the first to have this faith. She passed it along to her daughter, Eunice. And then Eunice, in like fashion, passes it on to her son, Timothy. This is a faith that came to these individuals through Scripture. We know this because it is from childhood, we're told in chapter 3 and verse 15, from childhood that Timothy had been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is, the Old Testament Scriptures. These same writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And so here are, again, three generations, grandmother, mother, son, who they love the Scriptures, they've been made wise unto salvation through the Scriptures, this faith has been passed, this is intergenerational transmission of the faith and formation in the faith. And notice that it is the Scriptures that are instrumental in forming that faith. Examples could be added from, from Scripture. I mentioned earlier that there are a number of examples historically uh, that could be noted. I just want to bring up to our attention two. The first is a woman named Monica. Monica has a son. His name is Augustine. 
he will become that Augustine, the 4th and 5th century theologian. The story of Monica, she was married to a pagan man, though she herself was quite devoted and quite devout in her devotion to Christ. She began to see that her son was a chip off the old block. He was following right in the steps of his father. And so she warned her son when he was yet a teenager that he was beginning to follow after his father's footsteps. She told him, you need to stop your immorality, your sensuality. This is apparently counsel that Augustine ignored. In fact, in his confessions, he says as much. He, he says, it, it sounded to me like so much womanish counsel. And so at the time, he brushed it aside, and he continued to live away from God, continued to live his profligate lifestyle. But all the while, once her son had left the house, Monica continued to pray for him, continued to wear out a pathway to the Father's throne of grace, pleading with tears that, that Augustine described as being more than if a woman's son had died bodily. And in his confessions, one phrase that Augustine uses over and over to, when he's talking about his mother's prayers, and, and the confessions are essentially Augustine praying this to God. He says, you heard her, O Lord. You heard her, O Lord. You heard her prayers. Because God eventually gets a hold of Augustine, and Augustine is converted. But he, Augustine, notes especially the tears of his mother and the prayers that she prayed on his behalf. Eliza Spurgeon is another mother, historically, that we can point to. She's the mother of Charles Spurgeon. He, of course, was the well-known Baptist preacher in the 19th century in his autobiography, Spurgeon recounts that his father was often away on Sundays because he had his pastoral duties. Uh, his name was John. But Eliza would be at home, and she would sit at home on Sunday evenings, and she would gather her children around her. She had a number of children in addition to Charles. And she would read the Scriptures, and she would teach her children what the Scriptures meant. And then she would plead with them to think about the state of their souls, and she would exhort them to seek the Lord, and then she would pray. And Spurgeon recounts, remember, he remembers hearing her pray one time uh, in this way, Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish, and my soul must bear a swift witness against them, at the day of judgment, if they lay not hold of Christ. Man, what a prayer, right? Spurgeon goes on, he says, I thought, that thought of a mother's bearing swift witness against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart. Again, the examples could be multiplied of mothers historically. And maybe your, your stories may be similar to that. Prayers, pleading on behalf of your children with God, sharing and imparting the faith to them as you read Scripture and explain it to them. And listen, when we talk about Great Commission motherhood, this isn't something earth-shattering, world-shattering. This isn't something where we're saying you've got to go to outer Slobobia to be a missionary, to give your life there, anything like that. 
Great Commission motherhood, mothers who embrace the Great Commission, it looks, well, a lot like this. Praying and reading Scripture and sharing the Gospel with your children. It starts right in your home. Determine that you are going to give them back to Yahweh. Determine that you're going to do what we're instructed to do, say, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verses 4 through 7, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Notice verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Notice first, it starts in our own hearts. We ourselves must be devoted to God and to His law, to His Torah, that His law must find its place in our heart first. But then, and out of our devotion, and from that heart, we now seek to teach and instruct God's Word and God's law diligently to our children. But in order for our kids to know the Lord, they must be exposed to God's Word. You know, If I mention the name Suzuki, you probably think vroom vroom, right? Motorcycles. and Although the first vehicle that Kim and I purchased was a Suzuki Forenza. It was a four-door sedan. So, uh, But, I mean, typically that's what we think of, right? Automobiles, vehicles, motorcycles, all that with Suzuki. But actually, Shinichi Suzuki is a man who developed the Suzuki method for learning a musical instrument. Suzuki had the idea in his day, in the early 20th century, that any child could learn how to play an instrument. It was a novel idea in his day. But he thought that a child could learn how to play an instrument kind of like how they pick up their mother tongue, their mother language. And so there are several key aspects to the Suzuki method, but the first one is what we're talking about. It's exposure. You could even start this before the child is not yet born. The idea is the child is always listening to music, even especially music that they're going to learn eventually. When they're very small, the teacher provides a small version of the instrument to the child. That's what they're going to learn to play on. But then also, a larger version of the instrument is given to the parent. And what will happen is during practice sessions, the parent and the child are going to sit facing one another playing the instrument together. And so the child is imitating. Imitation is the next step in the method. The child will imitate what they see the parent doing. They're going to do. And then they do this regularly. This is repetition. Over and over again. They're going to practice the instrument. And every time that the child hits the right note as they're playing, or every time they have their hand in the proper position, at a boy, at a girl, that's encouragement. Pat on the head, a pat on the shoulder. Good job. Could be verbal encouragement. Maybe once they've mastered a piece of music, they do some kind of outing. Some kind of reward for the child. 
And then over time, those skills are mastered and, and refined uh, over time. That's, that's refinement. Suzuki became world famous for this method. And again, people, it was a novel idea. And so people initially thought Suzuki's just out there identifying kind of these child prodigies. But eventually they realized, no, he's just using any child uh, to, to utilize his method. And that was because Suzuki knew that if a child is just taught in, in uh, the right way, they can learn this. In the, in the same way, let me just ask, who is teaching your children? What is teaching your children? You know, this came home to me um, here recently. <laughs> I was reminded of this. Just the, the subtle, pervasive influence of repetition. My boys were singing the latest Burger King jingle the other day. And in fact, just before service, some of the kids over here, some of our kids were, were sitting on the pews, and somehow avocados came up, and one of them chimes in, avocados from Mexico. Just that repetition. And what, who is it that is teaching our children? Listen, television, screen time, electronics, it's right there. Well, let me meddle some more. What about God's Word? What about Scripture? What about the Gospel? Are our children being exposed to the Bible and Scripture? And I'm talking not just what we're doing now, or not just what we do Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, Tuesday mornings and Thursday afternoons and Saturday evenings. Are they being exposed do this. Do they see? And again, this is Mother's Day. Come back Father's Day. Don't worry. They'll get in the hot seat too. Dads will. But do, mom, do your children see you exposing yourself to God's Word? Do they see you in the Word? Do they see you in the Word with them? Do they see this over and over? Repetition. Have you encouraged them when it comes to their own reading of Scripture? Have you encouraged them when they explain some truth from God's Word to you? Or when they ask a good question? I mean, even before service, my boys were asking me questions about dragons. Are dragons in the Bible? I said, yeah. In fact, one of them has a name. It's called Rahab. Didn't know that, did you? It was your trivial pursuit question, I guess. I don't know. Are you helping them refine their knowledge of God? And look, I, I can already hear the pushback. You know, it's thing is, our people, they just don't have the, the attention span that they once used to, especially kids. You know, they just, they don't, they have shorter attention spans these days. And if I may, as gently, but as forcefully as I can say, baloney. It simply is not the case. I think I can prove it to you podcasts. Podcasts. Man, people will sit there for hours on end listening to Joe Rogan or Malcolm Gladwell or, or whoever has the leading podcast on Spotify these days. Your kids will do the same thing with Mr. Beast and EY Stream and Hobby Kids or whoever it is. Hours. Our attention spans are not shorter. What our hearts desire has changed. 
That's what it is. Mom, what desires are stoking your heart? What desires are stoking the fires within your own child's heart? Sharing the gospel with your children is what's at the heart of Great Commission motherhood, but also Great Commission motherhood seeks to influence others through faith and through love. We read there just a moment ago in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 about that sincere faith. That's repeated earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Faith is to be sincere. Love is also to be sincere. Paul talks about genuine love. Same word, by the way, in the original language. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, also 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 6, we're to have a genuine love, sincere love. Mother's faith and love must not be mere show. And of course, I'm talking about faith in God and love for God and love for God and His Word. It must not be hypocritical. We're not talking about phony baloney faith or plastic banana love. We're talking about real, genuine, authentic, legitimate love and faith. And certainly a mother's faith is seen by children Sunday mornings, but not just Sunday mornings. This is a day-in, day-out, habitual, regular practice Christianity. Daily discipleship. Because our, our children can, can identify. They recognize that phony baloney stuff. They can smell a false love and a false faith from a mile away. We need to be daily in God's Word. This reminds me of a story about a preacher had been preaching on the importance of daily Bible reading. And then the preacher and his wife, they were invited to one of the members' homes. And the preacher's wife had noticed that there was a calendar on the wall and that the, uh, the woman of the house had written on the calendar on the day that they were to visit, preacher and wife for dinner, dust all Bibles. Because the dust had collected because they didn't pick up the... Never mind. Look, a sincere faith, I'm not, it's, not a, it's not perfection. because None of us are perfect. We're talking about consistency. Being consistent in our daily walk with God. And all the family members know that mother walks with Christ. She's a woman who spends time in God's Word. She's a woman who spends time in prayer. She hates sin, but she loves righteousness. This is the genuine faith and the genuine love that she seeks to influence her children with and, and others with as well. Again, I don't think it's anything world-shaking, but it's the simplicity of a genuine faith. That's what's at the heart of Great Commission motherhood. And, and this is to be encouraged and to be celebrated, the disciple-making efforts of mothers. And, and let me just say, we recognize that. Mom, we, we recognize your devotion and your dedication, your influence, and we encourage you to continue to do that.
all the more. Continue to use God's Word to lead your children, lead your grandchildren to the same sincere faith that's in you. We also want to support you in your spiritual mission. That It is a spiritual mission to help you in whatever way we can to train your children in the way that they should go. And to recognize that is your first and primary local domestic mission, right in your own home, with your own children, your own grandchildren. Let me also say that God honors mothers who seek to fulfill the Great Commission. The Lord honors your Great Commission efforts as a mother. It's often the case that the daily work that mothers perform, is, it's often overlooked but not by God. And Scripture and experience show that even those small acts have exceeding value in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Let's commit this to prayer. Father God, we do thank you for mothers, for the examples that they set for the lives that they live in devotion to you. And we want to invoke a special blessing upon all of our mothers here today, those who are listening online as well, that you would bless them in their disciple-making efforts, that you would continue to stoke the fires and the flame of love for you, of faith in Christ, devotion to your word and to the gospel. We pray all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen.